Before we get started, I want to tell you about my new book. It's called The New Mobility Handbook, Rethinking How We Get Around Cities. The book builds on my work on the Smarter Cars podcast here over the last three years as we've explored autonomous vehicles, ride hail, and then micromobility and the impact of all of these new technologies on cities. New mobility options are incredibly popular and can encourage multimodal travel in ways that public transit has not. But these options have also created new challenges for cities that can't be solved by technology alone. We need to combine these new mobility modes with urbanist policies to keep our roads moving. Transportation in cities will not be an either-or solution. We don't have to choose between ride services, bikes and scooters, or getting everyone to ride the bus. It's not either or, it's and. We're going to need all of these technologies working together to rethink how we get around cities. The New Mobility Handbook offers a grand unifying theory of sorts for how we can have the benefits and convenience of new mobility options while also meeting city goals to encourage multimodal travel and reduce traffic and pollution. If you're not familiar with the principles behind urbanist policies like congestion pricing, transit priority, reduction in parking, and reallocation of street space, the New Mobility Handbook provides an introduction to these policies and how they can be used together with new mobility technologies to improve transportation in cities. The New Mobility Handbook is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle versions. I hope you enjoy the book. This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles and the future of transportation. Welcome to Season 5. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking with Warren Logan, the Policy Director of Mobility and Interagency Relations for the Mayor's Office in Oakland, California. He joins us to discuss what cities and companies can do to address racism in transportation and other aspects of city life. Warren, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. So last time we spoke, you were working for the city of San Francisco, the SFCTA, and now you are over in Oakland. Can you tell us what you're working on now? That's a great question. Um, I've made the big switch back to my hometown here in Oakland. I now work for the city, the mayor of Oakland, uh, Libby Schaff, who has done a lot of really awesome things for Oakland. And I'm now the policy director of mobility and interagency relations. And my role is actually kind of funny because, you know, the title may have changed significantly, (laughs) but I still get to work with some amazing people. And primarily my role is to just bring a lot of folks together, just as I did in San Francisco, across different subjects and to try and problem solve as best as I can. And I think that's the the stellar part about being mobility and interagency. You get to put a lot of different disparate people together to try and solve um, sometimes really challenging governmental problems. Oh, there are no problems in government. What do you mean? Everybody works great Only together. Only opportunities. <laughs> yeah, no problems. Only opportunities. <laughs> so how did you get involved in transportation policy? What was your path to these recent jobs? Well, you know, it started about 10 years ago, and it's weird to start any story 10 years ago at this point. But Originally, I wanted to be an architect, you know, back when I was a kid. And I realized that what I find more fascinating is the way in which people navigate the spaces in between the buildings and not just like what kind of mode 
they're using, right? Like, are you driving? Are you bicycling? Are you walking or hoverboarding for that matter? But how those people are affected by the design of that space, the other people in that space, and like what social constructs sort of align with that type of movement. And I think that what's really exciting about this moment that we are in history, where a lot of people are really thinking about what is it like to be an African-American in space, right? On the sidewalks, on, in a park, in their own homes. What does that look like? And it's it's really exciting, albeit challenging, and, and sometimes really raw to have to really wrestle with those intersectionalities. Seems like you bring a really unique perspective to the transportation planning, urban planning space. How do you think about that? I think that you're right. I, I, I believe I do bring an interesting perspective. I'm both black and I'm gay. But by that same token, I also don't want people to get the impression that just because I say something that I'm speaking for all black people or for that matter, all gay people, like it's been really great to use my role, particularly in the mayor's office to not just like use my voice for the people, but to make sure that the questions I'm hearing from my different communities are being elevated so that when someone in a, at a round table will say, Oh, you know, I heard that this community member said this, I'm not going to take that seriously. It's also my job to make sure that while I'm in the room, that I'm constantly reminding people to take us seriously, to take our challenges seriously, and to really reach out and reach into community. So I answer that in two ways, which is, yes, I have a unique role, but by that same token, it's not just my voice that's the important one. It's also making sure that I'm even repeating what needs to be said, not just coming up with pithy things on my own. Yeah, that's a a really great way of framing it to say that the importance of you being in the room is to ask the questions, to bring the questions from various communities who may not have been represented in these rooms in the past, and to say, here are the questions, not that I have all the answers, not that I'm the only one whose voice matters, but really to amplify the voices that have historically been underrepresented. That's exactly right. And it's interesting, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get to this later in our episode, but I find myself often repeating and even lifting up voices that I don't even agree with sometimes, but that I believe that their voice matters at the table. And I want to make sure that people are listening to that voice, even if I am not always the best person to, whether I agree with it or, or even represent that issue. So it's, I try and use for whatever little platform I have, I want to make sure that I'm sharing it with as many people as possible. So I've heard a lot on transportation Twitter and in the transportation community over the last month or so about the historic problems of Black people's voices being excluded from urban planning and from transportation planning and sort of the broader issues around public space. And as you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm not a transportation planner, so I don't have a lot of background in the transportation planning community. But what I've heard in reading and and listening over the last few weeks is the criticism that transportation planners in particular and urban planners more generally talk about street safety and their work as centered around vehicle traffic 
and the main goal is to protect people walking and biking or to create spaces where vehicle traffic flows. And the real focus seems to be on the idea of avoiding crashes or places where vehicle traffic doesn't flow the right way. Can you tell me what is your view of street safety and traffic safety and what are the broader issues that have been missing? That's a great question. And I think there are a couple of different ways to tackle that. The first is that even before we were talking about collisions, and I, and I think people still talk about this a little bit, is we were talking about congestion. And I hear a lot of transportation planners focus primarily around the idea that the first and primary goal of our effort is to make movement seamless and effortless and, and to reduce congestion. What's interesting, though, is that we've now, we as a planning culture, if you will, have shifted our attention to traffic safety, which I think is great from one perspective. We always want to make sure that people aren't dying while they're moving around our streets. But what's interesting about that, that narrow of a focus in the transportation planning world is that just as you said, people are focused on the vehicle, right? The conflict between a bike and a car. But at the end of the day, both of those things are actually people. And so one of the things that I've learned in the last couple of years is to always focus on the people's perspective and less so on the mode of travel that they're using. Because you find that there's a lot richer understanding of that person and the lived experience that they're bringing to that street, to that sidewalk, to that bike lane, to that community than just the mode that they're using. I think when you intersect transportation planning with race, with gender, with sexuality, you get a lot of really fascinating, albeit challenging issues that come up, which if you just focused on, especially in this moment here in June, if you just focused on the way that Black people feel unsafe walking, bicycling, driving through space, you would never have a conversation necessarily about traffic safety you'd really end up on a more social issue around policing. And that's a space that I think city planners are extremely unfamiliar with and frankly, I think uncomfortable to touch. And thinking even more specifically around this being Pride Month, I, I think that if we were to take an extremely granular but perhaps most dire issue of Black trans women in space, I believe that that reflects one of the closest intersectionalities we could ever get to about every shortcoming related to planning, transportation, and policing, and security for vulnerable bodies in the public rights of way. And there's just so much work to be done there. So what you're saying is, if you are a Black trans woman, or really, if you're any one of those three things, much less all, all three of them, your safety is uh, really in question. And it's not about getting hit by a car. It's about 16 other things before you think about the safety question of, am I getting hit by a car? That is exactly right. And I think this is why, again, the people first approach that I'm stealing from so many different people, so don't give me credit for that, <laughs> is... <laughs> just to be clear, is it is not uncommon for transportation planners to say, how do I make bicycling safe? 
And that is one approach, but it is, and I'm not saying that it's the wrong approach, but it is also missing the point. Because when you then go to community members and say, especially black and brown communities and say, hi, I'm a bicycle planner and I want to help you bicycle more safely, you're going to get a conflict of interest there because people are going to say, well, that's not the reason I feel unsafe on these streets. I feel unsafe because every time I go outside my house, I'm harassed by police or I'm harassed by institutions that make me feel unwelcomed. And that has nothing to do with the color of the stripes on the road and so much more to do with the color of your skin. People in the tech community like to talk about going back to first principles and when they're thinking about products and services, and this would apply to transportation planning, when you're thinking about sort of beginning at the beginning, it sounds like what you're really saying is the first principle here is freedom of movement. Are you free in any realistic sense of the word to walk out your door and go the places you want to go using the modes of travel you want to use? And if not, why not? And shouldn't the whole field be around figuring that out? And the traffic safety piece might just be one small piece of that. That's exactly right. And I think this is the part that makes my role in city government so special, which is that I get to look at these issues from an intersection of different agencies, different departments. And so, for example, if the only group responsible for the safe movement of people is the Department of Transportation, then we've completely missed out on a bunch of other opportunities to address the entire person, right? You know, if I went to my housing department and said, how would you address the safe movement of people? The housing department might say, well, we should talk about affordable housing related to placement of jobs. That has a direct relationship to how safe people are able to travel between spaces because it relates to the distances they have to travel and the modes that they have to use. Similarly, if you talk to the police department, for example, albeit perhaps challenging one at times, there is, again, room to say, well, what does it look like to make safe travel? And again, that's not necessarily about the transportation mode choice. That is, again, the, the silo that comes in with transportation planners and everything to do with policing. So I think that if we're going to have a conversation about safe travel, safe movement and free movement, it can't just be the transportation planners who are tackling that issue. It has to be a community voice meeting, the whole government working together. What you're really describing, it seems like, is the ways in which public space is often hostile to people due to race, sexual orientation, ableness, gender identity, all of these issues. How do you think about bringing together not just, as you say, the multiple different agencies across the city, but getting the right community inputs and engagements to explain to people in all these agencies to bring out the voices of multiple communities to get the right voices around the table. How do you approach that? I think there are a couple of ways to approach that issue. The first of which is, and I, and I think about this with tech a lot too, but I, I think government falls into this issue as well. You should hire the people you're trying to help. And on one hand, that sounds so simple, but for some reason it's complicated for a lot of people. But I think that it's important to have the people who are building the conversation be the people who understand where the conversation needs to go. And that's an issue that I think government is not used to addressing when it comes to 
what I think people typically call outreach, and I mean engagement. And I've said this for years now, which is that engagement is a two-way conversation. And there's something even more special when you actually bring in-house the people who are the most affected with those issues. And something that's so special about so many of the people who work for the city of Oakland is that they live here. And not just, oh, they moved here a year or two ago. It's they've lived in Oakland. They grew up in Oakland. They have families in Oakland. And so when you talk to them about these issues, they can give you a rich history around all of those different intersectionalities. And so empowering them to bring their full identities to work is going to be one of the ways that we get at um, driving at the issues that we're talking about. The other, though, getting aside from like who is at the table is also making sure that our departments are actually looking not from perhaps a, a more vertical siloed aspect, but I think of it in terms of horizontal, which is if the Department of Transportation, as an example, is going out to East Oakland to talk with folks about safety, they should be bringing the police department. They should be bringing the housing department. They should be bringing our sustainability team because what's going to happen is the community is going to be asking a lot of really intersectional questions and it shouldn't be the responsibility solely of one department to say, well, I don't have the answer to that. Let me get back to you. Let me call a different department. That's not fair to community. And frankly, it's a waste of their time as well. So I I think that it's important to not only hire the people who representative of the community and give them space to thrive in that organization, but also then to break down silos within, again, this is my perspective, being in the government, but breaking down those silos to think about more of a geography-based approach instead of just a subject-based approach. So going into a neighborhood with multiple departments uh, working together to say, let's look at all of the issues that affect this space affect freedom of movement, affect how comfortable you are in public space and try to address them in a more cohesive way. That's right. And funny enough, I think about this sometimes that I want to challenge my staff, my teammates to avoid saying what department they're from. Just say, I work for the city and I'm here to help you. You know, that awful (laughs) adage about what, 50 years ago, I'm I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I don't mean it like that, but... (laughs) You know, I think that that is a challenge that we're used to, that we need to get used to breaking, which is like, I'm from the Department of Transportation, and I'm only accepting questions and answers in this tiny little box of my subject matter. Well, you've mentioned the police. It's certainly top of mind for everyone in the whole country right now, in particular, the relationship between Black people and the police. How do you think about the role of law enforcement in transportation? It seems like there's a wide range of issues that are problematic from police brutality and killing of black people. There's harassment of black people. There's disparate enforcement of rules. How how do you start to think about where the police are, why they're there, what jobs they're given to be done in, in transportation? That's a really big question, and I'm, I'm going to try and do it justice and also recognize that there are so many people with probably better answers than, than myself, so I'm, I'm going to own that before I answer this question. I think that there are a couple of different ways that I, I look at this issue. And fortunately enough, 
we are right now, like many other cities, having this conversation about what is the role of the police? And then by extension, what are the other department's roles in deciding or regulating, for that matter, how our our residents, our employees, et cetera, drive people towards the police? So I'm, I'm going to kind of break that apart a little bit with a couple of examples. One is simply the way that we design our rights of way, the way that we design streets. The Department of Transportation has a series of traffic engineers, and we have planners who are responsible for going to the community and working with them to understand, okay, how would we design a bike lane? How would we widen the sidewalks? How do we increase the foliage on this corridor? And I think that people who are engaging in those meetings don't understand, and I I find this frustrating myself, they don't understand that part of the review process for the design of the built environment includes police review. And some of the reasons, actually the primary reason why our streets are so wide is in great part due to um, the ways in which both police and our fire department influence civic design of our streets. The street needs to be wide enough to fit cop cars down. it. We need to make sure that we have sight lines in place to make sure that we can regulate that space. That's one area that I have found in my 10 years of transportation planning a little bit uncomfortable because while I respect their opinion, especially from a fire and safety standpoint, I worry that we're asking of our police department to review something that, that they might not be the best tools in the toolbox to, to undertake. That's the first example. The next, though, is one from like a policy standpoint, which is if I, as the policy director, or by extension, the, the city government, are creating rules or programs that cause people to have to engage with the police in a way that might challenge their health or potentially damage their lives, that's something that we also need to take responsibility for. And I use, here's a really good example, which is that Vision Zero has, and you probably have heard of this quite a bit, has several E's, and one of them is enforcement. And a lot of people have started to question if we as transportation planners have been moving in this trajectory to encourage more bike lanes or, you know, have different types of roadway treatments, but that if they rely on police enforcement to make sure that they work, we're actually setting up a system for conflict, for black and brown bodies to come into a space that is going to jeopardize perhaps their life. And that is something that shouldn't just be owned by the police department. That is actually on our civil engineers as well, that we need to be thinking about even the design of space that is more self-enforcing instead of one that relies on police interaction. The final element here is when I think about our municipal code and the ways in which we penalize people for different types of infractions, there are some communities just as simply as, as a parking ticket, if you take that, that if you get one parking ticket, let's say, you know, it costs you $30, but if it escalates to three parking tickets that have gone unpaid, in some communities, that means that a police officer shows up at your door. And that went from a transportation policy, you know, to two degrees of separation to the police. And so I, I'm starting to ask my team to look at the sort of like degrees of separation between a policy that we enact and the tools in which we use to enforce it. And if the first tool is the police, we need to find a buffer in between those two to say, no, what's the escalation rate between this rule and the enforcement that it takes to get compliance and to make sure that there's plenty of room before 
And I think perhaps the last step should always be the police, not the first. Yeah, I mean, I think you're saying there's two things there. One is the criminalization of infractions that are inherently not crimes, right? Like you parked your car in the wrong spot. That's a violation of a rule, but it's not a crime. It's that's something right. that we think of that as a civil problem, not a criminal problem. So why do we have people who are charged with and frankly should be able to spend their full time on criminal offenses are now ticketing and doing things that are civil offenses. Is that a way to start thinking about divvying up responsibilities in the transportation space? It is. That's a great way to look at it. And it's funny because I, I put out on Twitter, you know, please share your ideas on how to decouple these issues. And, and someone even shared an idea that when you get into a collision, like let's say you get a, you know, into a car crash, the people that are responsible for responding to that crash are the police. They go, they take the report and whatnot. But the funny thing is I could just as easily perhaps send my traffic engineer or even my safety team out to go look at that situation because ultimately they're the ones who are going to need to be responsible for changing the built environment to be safer. So it's actually kind of funny that, again, we're using the police to respond to issues that perhaps shouldn't be their responsibility. Yeah. I'm constantly remi reminded of the Dallas police chief, maybe this is a year or two ago now, that to his credit also called this out from the police department standpoint, which is that we as a society, I hate using that as a you know official statement, but we as a society have also asked of police too much. And we need to take back some responsibility to say, actually, you shouldn't be responsible for this. Other people should be responsible for that. You hear it when people talk about things like homelessness and interacting with people on the street who have various problems that might be mental health related or other things. I, I think it's a really interesting discussion to start thinking about unbundling that and trying to figure out the places that it makes sense where there is actually criminal activity and, and trying to limit it. But I have to say, like, how messed up is it that you go to work thinking about transportation issues. And the first thing you have to think of is how can I keep the police as far away as possible from any kind of transportation enforcement because they're going to shoot black people. We, we shouldn't have to have this problem where there's a police force that is a hazard to black people at such a level that we now have to go back and either not have rules or have them be self-enforcing because the enforcement can't be done in a way that's not racist, apparently. Yes, and it's sometimes I look at the news, actually, often, most times when I see the news of yet another black or brown person being killed by the police, I think to myself, like, how freaking hard is it to just not do that? Right. Like yeah. you have options. And and I think this is where the rage comes from that I think you kind of see, especially in some of these protests where people are like, this is not that hard. And it's not like we've never seen police take different actions, because I think it'd be this is a little blunt, but we have seen interactions between the police and extremely violent people. Like, for example, 
white people that have shot up an entire church or something. And yet somehow they're able to subdue this person and bring him to a jail instead of killing them. And that's the part that I think black people especially are just so done with because it's like, how hard is it to just enforce the law and then not kill us? Like it shouldn't be that hard. That's the thing that keeps me up at night is like, why is it that this is somehow rocket science that like we have to completely un, un, you know, undo every single policy. And frankly, it's racism. Like that's the part about why this is hard is that underneath it, we as Americans really have not pulled back the fact that there's so much racism in our society and we're not able to have concrete discussions about like how we got here and how we're going to get beyond this. Because I think, and it's funny because I know even a lot of my friends have said, well, racism is something of the past, that slavery was a long time ago and that all of these roots are just so far away. But the fact of the matter is my grandfather is 103 years old and he tells me stories about how his grandparents were freed slaves. It's not that long ago that the people that we have right in front of us are descendants of the very issue that was the root cause of how we got here. And so to have this sort of like amnesia is just ridiculous. Well, amen to that. And I think a lot of black people now who are expressing this anger and saying this is ridiculous, also saying, why did it take white people so long to believe us? The, the real change in what's happened here, like when you look at the George Floyd situation, is that the video was so clear. Like there have been other circumstances where the video wasn't 100% clear or whatever, but white people have historically taken the position of like, well, you know, the police, they were in a difficult spot, like sort of looking at it from a perspective of, well, it can't possibly be that they're so racist that they're just going to kill this guy. It's almost like when you're saying like, how hard is it just not to kill black people? I think the incredulousness that white people have who are allies in this fight are, are realizing, wow, like we just didn't even think this was possible. And black people are like, really? Because we've been telling you this for decades. Um, That's exactly right. You and, know. This is, and it's kind of interesting because I, I think about the moment we are particularly in history. And I remember an article that came out about the time that the iPhone came out. So we're looking almost 10 years now. But I think the reason that we've come to this exact place in you know this moment in history in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, is that we now have a confluence of several different situations. The first of which is that nearly everyone has a smartphone with a camera on it. And that's important, right? Like we are now trained to take a video of the thing that is happening to us or to someone else. That's issue one. The second is most people to some degree have at least either a personal or a secondary connection with social media, which means that sharing this content, right? Like sharing that video instantly across a broadband internet connection, right, is now extremely possible as well. So it's not just a smartphone with a camera. It's not just social media. And it's not just fast internet. It's all of those things together that I think are taking the wool off a lot of people's eyes. That said, right, like that's one group, which is the group that has said, wow, I didn't know. 
And I'm going to be honest, and I don't know if I can curse on your podcast, but like (laughs) I'm calling BS here, which is that, you know, part of me is also insulted. Like just to your point, Michelle, like we've been telling you this entire time that this was a problem and you didn't believe us. So why is it that it took all these videos to get us here? That's issue one. The second is that we're still in a problematic space where I think people are not just outraged by watching black people get hurt at the or killed by police. They're also then, I have seen some outrage about white people confronting the police while protecting their black friends. And I can't tell if people are more upset that it's happening to black people and they're just now realizing it, or if they're even more upset that, that it's also happening to white people. And I think that's something that is an onion that I'm not entirely willing to unpeel because I, I don't know if I have the emotional bandwidth for that. But I just call into question sometimes people's sort of like moral outrage at watching, understandably, that elderly gentleman returning the police helmet and getting pushed over. And it's like, yeah, that's awful. That should never have happened. And also, black people get shot every day. So what do we, like, how do you reconcile all these issues together? Um, yeah. And like, then lastly, like it must so, be violence if they're doing it to an old white guy. So, oh, right. it must be, or it must be horrendous now. Yeah. And that's, that's, I guess, the part that it's like, because we've had a lot of videos of black people getting killed. We've had a lot of videos of black children getting thrown to the ground. I remember that pool party video that was just outlandish, right? And it's, and to me, like, we didn't really get very far. People still found ways to say, well, you know, what happened before the video? I wasn't there, you know, and maybe they didn't comply, whatever, whatever, which again, BS. But it seems to me that there might be also this movement that I think is important is that I think to some degree, white people are coming to grips with this issue about the police having like brutality issues, not because it has been affecting black people and they're now just realizing it, but because other white people are now showing up to the protests and getting hit by rubber bullets and getting tear gassed and, 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 and that it's affecting them. And I don't know if that's the solution that like everyone has to feel this hurt to, to believe it. Right. But here we are, you know, and, and it's just, it's a, it's such a challenging moment. It is. It's interesting about the iPhone. People always say there were all these unintended effects and developments in society as a result of the iPhone and whether it was enabling Uber or all these other different things that happened off of the iPhone. I think that when we look back at this period in history, we're going to realize that the most important thing ultimately was the camera and the ability to record what's happening in places where typically there was no camera and there was no actual record of what happened. I think the important parts of that, though, and and I can almost bring us back to a transportation focus as well, is that I don't believe that having video or having data is the only answer to the problem, because I think that that almost lets us be race neutral sometimes or like you know when people say well it doesn't matter what race they are because now i have a video and i can see what happened right i i worry that that's an excuse for not believing people the first time they told you that something bad happened 
in the same way that, you know, that amazing movement, Believe Women, right? It, there's so many different examples of, well, I wasn't there. I need better data to really believe you. It's like, no, you could just be a compassionate human being and understand that I'm not lying to you when I say that all of the bruises on my body didn't just happen by accident, right? That I didn't strangle myself, right? And that, and this is the transportation aspect that I think transportation planners also run into is that, oh, I guess we need better collision data. I think in tech gets into this as well. We need an absolute picture of everyone's movement to understand how to help somebody. And I don't think that's true. I think that if you just listen to people's stories for a second, you would know how to help them. But instead, we use excuses to sort of like, I think, silence people's real pain and kind of give ourselves a, a, a space between our common humanity. And that's, that's a really mm. hard thing to say. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I do feel the analogy with things like Me Too, which is another area of society where people are not believed. And I think for people who are white and who haven't experienced what it's like to be black in America, but who are women, you can at least by analogy understand what it's like to not be believed, right? And and there's still no videos, most sexual assaults. <laughs> exactly. Um, so the only way we got Me Too was because 60 people came forward or whatever with all the same story and then mm -hmm. we'll believe you, right? And I think the cumulative effect of police killing black people has all it's also taken a cumulative effect not just one video but as you say people not believing it and needing to see it over and over again to really believe that it's not just one bad cop it's this pervasive problem thank you for sharing all of that and your thoughts on that because it's a painful but really important discussion to have and i appreciate your thoughts yeah. on it so you're in Oakland. Oakland has been a leader in some developments on how to reshape our streets. So coming back to this question of safety on the streets and how people use our public spaces, can you tell us about Oakland's decision to open up miles of slow streets during the pandemic, what that looked like, how you came to those decisions, and what the reaction has been from some folks in the Black community around that. It's been an interesting process. Yeah, there's, and it's amazing because there's so much intersection, just as we've been talking about, between, again, public safety black and brown bodies in public rights of way, and now again, transportation activists. So let me take a step back. Now, two months ago, maybe over two months ago, the mayor of Oakland, Liddy Schaff, announced 74 miles of neighborhood bikeways would be closed for close to through traffic. And that's a term of art that's actually sort of important because we didn't close the streets entirely. We said, if you live on the street, feel free to drive in, please be careful. But we also recommended to sort of acknowledge that there are many neighborhood streets that act as throughways that that shouldn't, that people should be going to the major arterials and not driving quickly through neighborhoods, jeopardizing people's safety. Those streets were selected from our 
Neighborhood Bikeway Network, which is on the 2019 bicycle master plan that's titled Let's Bike Oakland. And that plan included thousands of people's different comments around what types of infrastructure changes and programs they were looking for. And so one of the networks that's nested within the larger bicycle master plan includes these 74 miles of neighborhood bikeways. So in case your listeners are curious where we pick those streets, they were from that plan. Can I just pause you there? When you say neighborhood bikeways, does that mean it was a street that already had a bike lane? Or what is it to be a bikeway? Yeah. Yeah. So a neighborhood bikeway is, other cities might call them bicycle boulevards. They are just naturally safe street. Well, they should be naturally safe streets because they are oftentimes lower residential streets that are narrow and don't uh, continue for very many blocks. So if you look at a map on, you know, Oakland's map, we have two sets of grids, basically one that runs north and south on the uh, west side of Lake Merritt, which sort of bifurcates the city a little bit. And that's one set of grids. And then when you travel east from the lake, all the way to San Leandro, you have a different set of avenues that climb from First Avenue all the way through 109th. And what happens, though, is in between that grid, there are a series of streets that are often just named streets after whoever you know was important at the time. And they sort of zigzag throughout the neighborhoods. And so what this bundle of streets does is that just naturally, you wouldn't really want to travel down them for very long unless you were trying to get to something on that block because you're going to hit a T intersection or, you know, have to jog over or zigzag. And so just naturally by design, that network is supposed to be safer for people to walk and bicycle. Unfortunately, what happens in cities like Oakland, but not just Oakland, uh, is that people will use these neighborhood streets as cut throughs to get around congestion on major arterials, not too far away, parallel routes. Have I answered your question? Yes. Thank you. That was very helpful. Yeah. So it it wasn't as though you were starting with streets that already had some sort of bike infrastructure. You were just taking streets that are not main arteries that are inconvenient for people to drive on anyway, unless they're going to a local uh, destination. That's exactly right. And it's kind of funny because I've shared this with a number of people that I'm enthusiastic that Oakland has all this attention about our our slow streets. And it's funny that this is what's made the headlines because it's kind of like we told people, don't drive on streets you already don't really want to drive on. (laughs) And, you know, so like that's the first step, right? The second was that we went to Google Waze and Apple and uploaded all of these different streets and asked them sort of through a series of favors to change their routing system so that if you are driving through Oakland, you're not going to be routed onto a slow street. So it's actively through digital infrastructure, right? Like discouraging drivers from going onto those local streets. The third element of the slow street program is that we added what are called soft closures. So we just put up barricades where you would see what's called a fast turn from an arterial to a slow street. And that's actually built around our high injury network and the crash data that we have. There goes data again, Mm -hmm. uh, where we know from our data that people drive really fast down a a major arterial, and then they will turn onto a neighborhood street, oftentimes less focused about where they're turning on to and and the type of 
traffic that they might be confronting on that street and instead more focused about getting out of traffic's way. And what that ends up doing is you have someone literally driving too fast, making that turn that's often blind and hitting someone in the crosswalk or just beyond the crosswalk in the street or in some cases on the sidewalk. Uh, And so that's the type of behavior we're trying to calm, essentially. And what do the barricades do? It's like a sawhorse type barricade. And where is it? And does it allow for a single car to pass through or two cars? Or how are they set up? Yeah, so it's technically speaking, it's an A-frame that has a few different sandbags on it to keep it sturdy. And it has a, a legal sign that says close to through traffic and two diamond signs that are uh, encouraging bicycle and pedestrian activity. Where they are placed is just on the outside of the crosswalks. And what it's doing is prohibiting right turns from the arterial onto the slow street. So it's discouraging the turn from the street onto a slow street, but it actually does allow for only one car to enter or exit really through that more narrow intersection now that we've made it essentially. But the funny thing is, and again, I'm kind of like, I'm happy that everyone's paying attention to Oakland, but I'm also saying like, this is not an extensive program in a a way, which is that people woke up the next day and saw a few A-frames and a couple of intersections And somehow it was as if the sky fell down. And I think that's also kind of funny because it's like, I wish that we got fanfare for all of the other programs that I believe are just as, if not more, impactful. Holding that aside, you asked me kind of what the reception was to the program. And I will say that it was not just mixed, but really bipolar. One part of the city, and I will say bluntly, the white affluent part of the city was like over the moon. And ironically, this is also the same part of the city that oftentimes are people who are against bike lanes because of loss of parking. So we're going to hold that aside, but just acknowledge that there was some hand-wringing there as well. Yeah. (laughs) But then that said, the people of color, the East Oakland black and brown communities met this initiative with a lot of questions and a lot of, I think, anger and confusion. And I'm, I'm going to go through a couple of different examples of the types of feedback that we got in, in the first couple of weeks and try and spell out to me like what I heard. So one person, actually a couple of people, called our office and asked us without any irony, are you tricking people, tricking black people into going outside to catch COVID as a way to kill us? And... Mm-hmm. That broke my heart because it showed me that, and and the irony here is that I helped manage our testing program. So it was like, whoa, that, like, I didn't see that coming. Like that really, that was a a gut punch Yeah. because it was like, like, who thinks that way? And then, you know, instead of getting defensive, I was like, that to me said everything I needed to know about, as if I didn't know this already, but about the deep distrust that people of color have for the government. And frankly, understandable distrust, because it is not as if that hasn't happened before, where government takes an action to actually actively harm black and brown communities. And I won't lean into every single example, but a quick Google search will give you about 100. The second reaction that we got was, why is this 
program, the city's priority? Shouldn't you be focused literally on testing? And again, a little bit humorous to me because it was like, actually, we are <laughs> doing a testing program as well. And that said to me another challenge, which is that it is a privilege. And I said this on a panel I was just on, so I'm repeating myself, but I think it's important, which is it is a privilege not only to know how to communicate with the government, but also understand that the government, capital G, is not actually one single actor, but a series of sometimes, actually oftentimes, ill-coordinated, separate, siloed organizations that are bound together by, by a council and a mayor's office. And so in this example, you know, my natural reaction would say, well, the DOT isn't responsible for testing. Please decouple these things. But that said, that still showed me that we have to do a better job of communicating the entire city's priorities. And I mentioned this earlier, that we need to do a better job of communicating as one city and not just as individual departments. So then the third reaction that we got was one more specific about the slow streets themselves. And I'm going to kind of tease this apart a little bit. A number of people said, wait a minute, who did you talk to about this program? Did you engage with all of the community members before doing this? And the answer to that is sort of yes and no. Yes, because we used the bicycle plan that uh, had, I believe, and I think a lot of people believe, an extremely robust community engagement platform. The no part being that no, we did not have another year-long process to share with people our emergency response plan to put up flimsy barricades on a number of intersections to discourage people from turning quickly from large streets to small streets. And you might hear the sort of like frustration in my voice, but that's, that is also my answer. Yes and no. Yes, we did last year. And no, we did not inform everyone in that exact moment hey, we should talk about this again. And, and I'm sure we'll kind of get to that later. So I'll, yeah. I'll put a pin in that. One of the other more subtle reactions, though, about the program itself was one about the barricades specifically, which is that East Oaklanders, and I don't want to say all East Oaklanders, but a number of people shared with us uh, a frustration around the fact that the barricades reminded them of a lot of other construction projects in their community and the relationship between then construction and unmitigated impacts to community safety, community health, economic development, and so on. And, and I think that that's an important one to think about is that like sometimes aesthetics matter too. And so I, I sort of leave that on its face there. But from that feedback, we have taken a lot of different pivots to try and meet the community where they are. The first of which is that we now have weekly meetings with a number of East Oakland advocacy groups that sort of represent a lot of different intersections of, I think, the identity of East Oakland residents. So that's every week. All, many senior leaders are on that Zoom call because we can't meet in person yeah. <laughs> to just talk bluntly about what it is that we need to change. So communication has improved. The second is that many of the, and, and really from, from that conversation, a lot of folks have said, if you're going to be focused on traffic safety, you know, traffic safety again, please focus on getting community members to essential places, right? Especially in light of 
COVID-19 and our ability to need to get to the clinic safely, to get to grocery stores safely, and so on. And so we have actually paused the rollout of more soft closures throughout East Oakland and pivoted to a number of what are called essential places that are safe crossings and improvements to grocery stores, health clinics, community resources, and things like that. And, And that seems to be going really well. Acknowledging the sort of Uh, confusing communication that we were having around telling people to go outside, but also you should be getting tested and so on. We started using the barricades as a way to share information. Again, because I I helped manage the testing program, I actually asked our volunteers to deploy a series of signs on every single barricade and on every single slow street, information, you know, very simple posters of information around how to get free COVID testing in their community. And I think that that was another win to say, we're hearing you, we are going to provide information, and better yet, we opened two more testing sites in East Oakland. And a lot of the the slow streets are around those testing sites. So that that was another sort of key point in our, our planning effort. It's so interesting to hear the different reactions. And as you say, sometimes you get reactions you're really not expecting. It's a great idea to put the the information about COVID on the barriers. (laughs) I think what you're saying is in the wealthier parts of Oakland, people responded to a closed street by saying, yay, I'm working from home and now my kids can ride their bike outside. And folks in some black communities were viewing going outdoors as a negative and that there was less space for them to feel safe being active outdoors, that they were perhaps continuing to work as essential workers and didn't have time for recreation. That's right. Feeling that the government shouldn't be focused on providing recreation at a time when we're in the middle of this emergency. That's, you're absolutely right. And it's, and frankly, I don't blame people. Like I respect every single criticism we've gotten about this program. And, and my point that I've always said to people is I like criticism as long as it's constructive. I'm here to listen. I want to know what it is that we need to change so that we can improve the situation. It's not my job to tell people, I think we did it right. Have a nice day. Like that's not going to work. At least that's my perspective. I don't, and I know that our staff agrees with me on that. I think too, though, that there's also been another type of criticism not just about Oakland's Slow Streets program, but about quick build projects generally. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit because I think that that criticism also spells out a, a broader issue. So on one hand, I've read on Twitter and a different you know, thought pieces and different articles that engagement has to be part of this effort. You can't just act on community members. And that's totally true. I want to kind of respond to that issue first, which is that I agree that I've said this a number of times, engagement is always critical for any type of action that the government takes on. That said, I'm also not willing to apologize for making an effort to address two different emergencies in a way that I believed would make a substantial step forward. The first of which being that people are getting hit by cars all the time in cities like Oakland and specifically in Oakland. And that that is in and of itself an emergency that should be treated like an emergency. The second is COVID-19 is also a real emergency. And just because people um, are getting sick, which is of course critical, does not change the demographics of 
especially East Oaklanders, that many of whom don't have access to a car. So if you put those intersections together and say, well, in these neighborhoods, this is the highest incidence of um, traffic fatalities, particularly because people are trying to walk to their essential places. It is then that much more important that we take swift action to address now this dual intersectionality of, of danger. And perhaps even most importantly, and maybe this is selfish, I, but I, I mean this quite compassionately, I don't know if I have the stamina emotionally to continue going to funerals that are held at these elementary schools where parents are crying out to me saying, you need to do something yesterday because our kids don't feel safe going outside, right? So I acknowledge that maybe the barricades were a miss, right? There's always room for, for improvement. But I, I want people to understand that our heart is in the right place because we believe that everyone deserves to feel safe, like anywhere in their neighborhood. So that's the first element I want to kind of like tackle. The second piece, though, and I and I really, agree, I frankly, agree with the sentiment quite a bit. And I don't, I don't know if I've shared this with anybody yet, which is that I think that a lot of white urbanists are looking at quick build projects and, frankly, slow streets projects as mission accomplished. We're done here. This is all that we ever need to do. Let's pack it up and go away. And that's not the case. There are so many other strategies in our toolbox that, that we owe, especially to black and brown residents in places like East Oakland. I think that it's important to have slow streets and to not stop there. It's the beginning to say, and you also deserve police reform, and you also deserve affordable housing, and you deserve your potholes to be filled, and you deserve stop signs, and you deserve any number of other important strategies that I feel quite strongly have been um, disconnected from those types of communities. And so I think that of the underlying criticism that people are also uh, sharing about slow streets and, and even specifically about Oakland, right, is that I think people feel like we're patting ourselves on the back and, and calling it a day on just that work, that now that's all we had to do and we can keep it moving and not address, again, the underlying racist policies that that affect everyone every day. And I want to acknowledge that I hear that and I agree. And it's important that we continue the work addressing the deeper rooted issues and not just start and stop at barricades moving forward. That leads, I think, to the broader discussion, not just about slow streets, but about things like protected bike lanes. We've had a renewed interest, especially in the Bay Area, ever since micromobility came on the scene. A lot more people have expressed support for and interest in having protected spaces to ride a bike, a scooter, uh, what have you. And so there's been this renewed focus on protected bike lanes as something that can save lives. And it seems like in Oakland and in a number of black communities, there's an objection to bike lanes. Why are bike lanes such a focus point or a cause for concern uh, among some in the black community? That's a really good question. I'm, I'm going to try and unpack maybe 60 or 70 years of urban planning theory at the same time. So bear with me. And feel free to stop me if this is getting boring. But yeah, go ahead. I, I think that 
to me, bike lanes, and I've seen this too with a lot of like micromobility and bike sharing programs as well, are frankly a symbol for a lot of other harbingers of gentrification and then by extension, physical, social, and economic displacement. And so oftentimes I'll hear people say, well, bike lanes are for white people and black people don't bike. And I'm, I'm going to like start there. First of all, black people do bike. Like I own a bike, not to speak for all black people, but black people do ride bicycles. And that in and of itself should like be its own storyline. We have amazing groups here in Oakland. There's the scraper bike team. There's cycles of change that are responsible for bringing primarily black youth to enjoy bicycle riding and, and share their culture on bicycles in East Oakland. So I want to lift up that program first. The second, though, is that it's not uncommon for people to say outside of black people don't bike, but that bike lanes are the reason why we have gentrification, that, that the gentrification is rooted in the bike lane. And I'm actually going to push back on that. I don't think that the bike lane is the reason we have gentrification or by extension why white people are moving into frontier neighborhoods and ultimately perhaps displacing black people and, and brown people from these lower income neighborhoods. The reason that happens is because we don't build enough housing and we don't have a strong affordable housing program in the city or in, frankly, a lot of cities in America or, frankly, in California. And that, to me, is where the conversation really should start. Because to me, by the, you know, when I kind of understand the, the framework around how neighborhoods change, by the time the bike lane is, is the conversation point, by the time the city comes to say, we'd like to put a bike lane here, I think that the change has already come. That, that by the time someone has asked for a bike lane to be put in a neighborhood, it means that a number of forces have already taken place to cause you know, some type of gentrified shift in communities. And so I challenge, especially black and brown communities, to engage in city planning dialogues and, frankly, for cities to engage black and brown communities in that same dialogue earlier than the bike lane. To have a conversation, and I'll actually use a, a really concrete example in Oakland. So right now, and maybe this is actually last year, the city of Oakland has been, you know, continuing an engagement, a dialogue with a lot of black and brown community members and business owners here in downtown Oakland to talk about putting in a protected bikeway that sort of runs from uh, the lake to um, the freeway, which is sort of spans both sides of the greater downtown neighborhood. And a lot of the issues that they've cited, which is you're taking away our parking and you're going to destroy our business, or you're bringing in white community members and they're not welcome, or black people don't bike. And the thing that frustrates me about that conversation is that there's understandably a really deep fear for these community members around their, I think, inability to, to feel whole in their community, to say, I am not going to be displaced from this space, no matter what happens. And the bike lane isn't the reason that they feel fearful underneath it. It's the fact that Eight different developments went along that same building in the last three years. Oakland is very proud of the fact that we've been building a lot of housing, primarily on vacant parking lots. But by that same token, what frustrates me about the conversation that we've been having about this one bike lane project is that we're not really talking about the issue. And I don't think that either party, the city or these businesses, are willing to accept that 
the larger forces at play that are quote unquote driving them out were decided five or six years ago. And the bike lane is to be blunt, the, like the nail in the coffin, so to speak. And, and that's not fair, right? Like we should have brought them in years ago when we were talking about entitling all of these projects, we should have come to them and said, there are opportunities for community benefits packages so that you can gain, you know, access to even better storefronts with even lower uh, rent subsidies, for example. But since none of that happened, we're now trying to work backwards against this tide that has actually already crashed in many ways against the shore. And that's that's the part where I, I challenge people again to the center focus of your question, Michelle, is like, it's not the bike lane. And if that's the issue you're trying to fix, like you've missed so many uh, off ramps before we got to this exit of about the bike lane that we could have helped communities thrive in place. Yeah, it's correlation, not causation. And it's more of a symbolic issue at that point in time, because the world has changed. But should there only be bike lanes in communities that are gentrifying? No. And that's the funny thing is that interestingly enough, our, our team has been thinking about this. And I actually want to take a step back again, to talk about, I think, why black and brown communities that are now sort of pushed out in the suburbs feel frustrated about bike lanes, which is that before, you know, this big push to bring people downtown, you actually had a historic disinvestment of downtowns where originally black and brown people used to live. Then what happened was, this is like a callous way of looking at urban history, but I'm going to make a point here, which is that then... A lot of, I think, wealthier white community, you know, members move to these hip areas, right? Like the artist enclaves, et cetera, and displaced black and brown people to suburbs with poor access to public transit and also lack of, of resources for grocery stores, et cetera. And so now you've got the situation where you've pushed people who are already disenfranchised to the fringes of cities, Right that are now disinvested. And then you are taking away the one, or what they feel perhaps, the one way they can get back to the center where the resources are by narrowing streets, by taking away lanes. And so I can understand that friction where it's like, gee, you put me all the way out here and now you're disconnecting me even more from the things that keep me whole. So like that's another way to look at it is like the history of urban displacement and the lack of then other means of travel between jobs and affordable housing. Because there's not sufficient public transit that black people are basically driving cars and saying, well, wait a sec, now suddenly everybody's going to be anti-car at the time when I, I need to drive my car. Yes, that's exactly right. And I've had a lot of people say black people don't bike, not because we don't know how to ride a bike, but it's like we have nowhere to ride to, right? Like you're far. trying to, yeah, it's too far. And I get that, right? Like we have a BART system here that runs, I think relatively frequently, but not in places that necessarily black and brown community members are always trying to get to. And then by extension, I can totally understand people being frustrated at our bus line system that sometimes can feel really circuitous and unreliable. So I've had a number of people kind of yell at me and say, well, can you blame me for driving and then feeling a kind of way about trying to maintain 
what semblance of efficiency I have with driving because you've given me only one option. And better yet, you haven't even given me that option. I've scraped together whatever means I have to make that as best as I can. And so, so it's so ironic because I think the people who have been historically advocating public transit, biking, all these active modes, etc., I think thought that these would, would be options that would help lower income communities of people driving were sort of wealthy white people who live out in Orinda and that it was sort of more democratic small d to to really open up these other options for people who can't afford to drive and park and i think two things you've said one sort of the fact that black people have been pushed out to areas that don't even have transit but also circling back to the safety issue where is the safest place for you in the transportation system? And, you know, I've heard a number of black women in particular say, I don't feel safe riding the bus. I don't feel safe with law enforcement on the bus. I don't feel safe on the street. At least in my car, I have some measure of safety, although I might get pulled over for driving while black and have an a confrontation with a police officer there, that it might be the best option. And that is exactly right. And it's, I'm gonna, it's funny, I, there was a really great podcast I listened to, and I think it was 99% Invisible, but I might be wrong, which is, it asked the question, where did all the black people go in Oakland? And it's to Antioch. And so that, like, that is a proven statistic that overwhelmingly the number of African Americans that have left Oakland over the last couple of decades have like primarily moved to Antioch. And so it's interesting to me too, when I think about like BART's investment to continue expanding out into the yellow line that it's just such a challenge to then say, okay, I've pushed you out of this place, right? I've pushed you farther and farther away from your job, from your community, from your home. And I'm also not going to give you safe, reliable options to get to where you're trying to go. And so again, I kind of return to that point about like focusing on people and not mode. I've yet to see a study that says, what's it like to move around in space and be black, right? We know that driving while black has its own implications, but bicycling while black is its own issue that our own bicycle plan actually addressed, which was that the number of stops that we see by our police for people on bicycles is extremely racist. Like you can see the numbers very clearly and show that there is a disparity between the race and the people who are, you know, stopped by police while, while riding a bicycle. So then if you take them just to repeat back to what you said, right? Like if I'm riding a bicycle and I'm terrified that it's a unsafe just because there's no safe infrastructure and it's unsafe because I'm going to get pulled over by the police who think I've stolen this bike, then I'm not going to choose to bicycle. Right. And then better yet, if I'm responsible for going extremely long distances to get from my house to my job, right? Because again, it is a privilege to live near your job. To live in an urban center is very expensive and that's where most of the jobs are. So if you are relying on a quick means of transportation that is going to, in some ways, perhaps even hide your identity a little bit or your race, to be frank, uh, and get you flexibly from 
your home that might be far from your job, it's no surprise that people end up with the car. And that's not fair. And as you said, the transit hasn't really kept up and transit isn't safe either. So that's right. You're really kind of out of options. And I think if you ride BART, you'll get arrested for eating a sandwich or whatever. Right. The disparate enforcement is of, of some of these rules. A lot of our listeners work for technology companies that are trying to develop solutions in the transportation space. And I think this discussion is really important not just in the urban planning sense, but also in the question around products and services and what problem are you trying to solve? And as you point out, it's a very different question to try to solve the problem you just posed of like, how are black people going to get to work when they live in Antioch? And I think it's really important for people who work at companies to think about that from different perspectives. And I feel like sometimes there's been a lot of criticism of tech for not having enough black people uh, or enough women and people who come from different perspectives. And sometimes people think about that as giving everybody a fair shot to have a job. And of course, 100%, that's a super important thing. But I think it goes deeper than that in terms of it actually changing your product or your service and what you build and what features you are and, and the way you think about it. Like you said in the beginning of this, it's about who the customer is and, and sort of understanding who you're trying to serve. And if tech companies, uh, as well as transportation planning departments, are really going to focus on helping everyone in society, it seems like you need to have people on your team, not just out of some sense of fairness, but literally to change the product or service that you offer. You're exactly right. And it's, and it's interesting. And I I don't like to translate social issues into like economic ones, but I I will use a, a slightly different example from tech companies. And I'll think about advertisement for a second, which is that I'm always fascinated when I see really like frankly racist tone deaf advertisements that then come like major corporations have to walk back and apologize and then make some you know like pseudo donation to whoever to you know (laughs) have a mea culpa or whatever and the funny thing is when i see that kind of stuff my reaction is a you clearly either don't have any people of color on your team because they would have told you that this was a terrible idea or and or you only have a few and you haven't empowered them to speak up. And I have, I had a boss recently while I was working in the city of, of Oakland, who is not the mayor to be clear. It's a city administrator who told me that she valued team members who disagreed with her and actually didn't trust decisions that her team was making when she would you know, propose something and everyone would just automatically agree because she worried that we that they had a blind spot that they needed to then figure out. And I think that even selfishly kind of bringing it back to tech companies, it would be wise of them to understand what their blind spots are so that they can make better products and then ultimately I think make more money. And and I hate to convert it into monetary terms. I think that people should just find it in their hearts to not be jerks, but there's also a an economic 
incentive here to hire diverse, thoughtful people so that you can make sure that you are always thinking comprehensively about what it is that you're putting out into the world, whether it's a message, whether it's a product. And I think that oftentimes tech really misses that point. I I had someone at a panel I was on maybe almost a year ago now ask why the city didn't just cancel all of its bus lines and instead give everybody a scooter. And I, and he said it without any irony. I was just like, I can't like the fact that you felt like that was something that you should say out loud (laughs) means to me that you probably have circulated that idea amongst a lot of people who didn't tell you that it was a bad idea to say that out loud. And that's the kind of thing that like, I'm not just trying to change the product here. I'm trying to change the team. I'm trying to change the face of what tech looks like so that people are asking the right questions from the very beginning. Because tech always likes to you know, say, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Always start with the problem. And it's like, well, your problem statement is also tone deaf then. And that's, I think that's the root of the issue is that you're not actually solving problems at least that are relevant to people of color, but especially even low-income people or any type of intersection of issues. And I think that by bringing in the right team members up front and paying them for their time and their voice equally, if not better, right, is the, the beginning of, of real change. Well, it's interesting because the criticism of tech is always that they're solving the problems of 20-something white men who live in San Francisco. Sort of the point of view you just expressed there of like these scooter guys who come in and they don't know about buses and, and these other important things about urban planning. And there's always been this kind of tension between urbanists and technologists. And I find it just a little bit ironic that some of the folks who are trying to speak up for lower income people and black people who have these different experiences in the built environment are actually expressing a need where technology in various forms could actually be helpful. Whether it's questions around should traffic enforcement be automated or if you had a super cheap autonomous vehicle it would get you from Antioch to your job at a lower price when there is no public transit. So I I feel like it's been kind of expressed in the transportation community as urbanism versus tech, but I actually think it's a much more nuanced discussion. And if we could kind of get past that and, as you say, break it down into what are the real problems that different communities have about getting around? What are the real needs for transportation and kind of coming at it from a different angle that you could bring together some aspects of technology to work to fix these various problems? I think that's right. And I'll add that, and I've said this so many times, it's like the five whys. When I think about autonomous vehicles, even more specifically in this case of like transporting people from Antioch to the city, for example, it's the autonomous vehicle is handling, I think, the, the superficial problem, which is public transit needs to be improved with better frequencies and security to help people get from one faraway place to another. But the deeper problem is, why are you traveling that far to go to work in the first place? And that's, I think, the part that both urbanists and tech companies 
are missing or perhaps ignoring and or, or maybe not even ignoring. And there's a component here about smart land use decisions and smart, affordable housing. And we try and consistently solve, I think, land use problems with transportation solutions. And you're invariably going to end up with a slightly blunted response. Well, this has been a long discussion, <laughs> but so important for everyone in this space. And it's just great to hear your perspective on these problems. Thank you for all your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. And it's I really enjoy having conversations that are, you know, just as we've had intersectional reimagining how all these different issues are affecting different people together and not just in one silo. So I'm really thankful that we had this opportunity. It's a really important message to close on for everyone to think about getting out of their silos, whatever those silos are, to really reach across other communities, but also other agencies and departments and to try to bring to bear all of those resources to solve what are some really d difficult challenges. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thanks for, for coming on. Take care. Mm -hmm. Thanks again to Warren for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our season five episodes on our new publication, smartercars.substack.com. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.